Welcome to the Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife Podcast Archive, where you have access to all the amazing insights Dr. Finlayson Fife has shared through hundreds of interviews. I'm Mackenzie, Dr. Finlayson Fife's assistant, and we are so glad that you're here. Today's episode was originally produced and published by the Rise by Lifting Others podcast. Enjoy the episode. Thank you for having me. I want to get started by talking about your college experience. I understand you got your undergrad at BYU in Provo. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yes. What did you major in? Well, I came initially with, um, I, I was an interior design major at first and, um, really, yes, I did that for two years and I actually always wanted to be a therapist and get a PhD, but I was afraid that that was too ambitious for a woman. And think things are different now at BYU, but when I was growing up, there was a lot more talk about women shouldn't work, women should be at home, that multiple degrees is a waste of family resources. So so I was definitely in that frame. My parents weren't heavy handed about any of that, but they also didn't have ambitions for me beyond getting married to a good Latter-day Saint. So, Uh So I wanted that, but I felt that it was wrong that I wanted it. So I, interior design was also a real passion of mine. I thought about like residential architecture and I just, I still love all those things, but mostly it was the safe route. And then when I went on my mission to Spain, I think a couple things happened for me. I saw a lot of families and women in particular in distress. And I, my desire to be able to be helpful to people grew And also my confidence in myself grew, like just my confidence in myself and my relationship with God and what was true for me felt emboldened. And I felt like I could do, I mean, I can't say I had a hundred percent confidence when I came back, but I felt like I could start taking steps in the direction of what I wanted, what I really wanted. Interesting. And was there anything you said that counseling was something you were interested even before your mission? Mm. Were there any particular personal experiences or things that had given you that interest in counseling? Yes. That's a good question. I think, I think that just from a very early age, I was a social scientist and I don't, I didn't have any language for that. I didn't know what that meant, but I was always kind of studying human interactions and why people were happy or unhappy or why relationships were happy. You know, I really was a fan of the idea of marriage from an early age, really. Like when people would talk about marriage down the road and everything, it just seems like such a great thing. But I also would see people being so unhappily married, like I'd be at church and you'd see a couple with their eight kids between them and they're on either end, you know, and I would think <laughs> Definitely they don't that. seem to be having this amazing marriage that, you know, we hear idealized. And so I was, I was always just kind of figuring that out. My friends would come to me for advice. My friend's parents would come to me for advice, honestly. And so I was always kind of in that role. I was perceived to have some insight and I cared about it. So it was, and you think it's just because you, you thought deeply about it and you had things to say, were you like reading a lot of books or. Um, I wasn't, I wasn't reading a lot of books, but I did read them. If I ever read books, I shouldn't say ever, but if I read books on my own, it was sometimes things that were just like novels or whatever that were interesting, but a lot of times it was psychologically minded books, you know, like on my own, I read the road less traveled by Scott Peck. That was, a you, know, uh, sure. you know, I was always kind of trying to figure life out. And so, um, so it was probably that, but I think it was more 
people just perceived my way of being then to be kind of similar to how it is now, which I just had thoughts about things. And I was always trying to figure faith out and people out. So interesting. Yeah. Hmm. But I didn't think of it as an intelligence or anything particularly unique at the time. I just knew it was how I was. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's cool. Mm -hmm. So tell me a little bit more about, you said that going on your mission really was eye-opening and also gave you a lot of confidence. Mm -hmm. I would imagine this is a common yeah. issue is people have this ambitious goal, maybe something that they even feel predisposed to do. You were clearly yeah. from growing up predisposed to, to be a counselor, to help other mm -hmm. people, but you have this thing, the safer route is yeah. interior design. Right. Can you talk a little bit more about, was it sort of an aha moment that like, okay, you know what, I'm, I'm just going mm -hmm. for it. Or was it sort of this slow progression of, um, I just can't. I can't not do it. I, I think it was a more slow progression. And I almost think of it as like, at a certain point, I knew what I knew. Like, yeah. you know, like you kind of like, I felt it before I went on my mission, I went to, I was thinking maybe I would do something like residential architecture because maybe that was a little more in line with what I wanted. And so I thought about transferring away from BYU when I came back. So I went and looked at schools on my own that had undergraduate architecture programs. And just none of it was gelling, you know what I mean? So there was just sort of like these moments where it just kind of wasn't coming together. And I'm not somebody who's like, look, God's going to just light the path for you. Just look for the, I don't think like that. I think you have to just keep stepping into the dark and kind of figuring it out as you go. But there were just certain things like that, that just weren't fitting. They weren't resonating with me. And there was just a certain point on my mission, but it wasn't like an aha. It was just like, I know that when I go back, I'm going to change my major. <laughs> it just like, yeah. I just knew what I knew. I knew it's what I wanted. And I had no guarantee. I had some anxiety about would I be smart enough to get into a master's or PhD program. And I mean, a, a real uncertainty about it because they're competitive and so on, but I just felt like I need to at least try. So, yeah. mm -hmm. And so by the time you finished your undergrad, you had changed to psychology, right? That's right. And also women's studies was a new thing at BYU. And so I also did a minor in women's studies, which was very helpful for me because a lot of my questions and challenges in my life had been around my perceived experience in the church that women were beloved, but they were sort of the men were the gold standard and women were the silver <laughs> because sure. there was all this messaging around women are there to back up men and to support them and to be their right hand person. And and now we, we use a lot more language of equality and equally yoked and all that. But when I was growing up, you know, my Sunday school teacher was teaching me all about polygamy and the temple was much more explicit about a kind of commitment to follow. So there was, right. there were a lot of things that for me felt wrong and I couldn't mm -hmm. parse it out and make it right. And so here at the gospel, it taught, the church had taught me so many valuable things in my life. And yet there were these things that felt wrong. And so coming back and being able to have really thoughtful professors who were assigning me readings and having conversations with me was exceptionally helpful in sorting out my own mind around some of these issues. Hmm. Well, I think that will have a lot to do with my next question. I, I guess let's just keep going then. Mm -hmm. You. Mm -hmm. So by the time you graduate, it's basically counseling were you any more specific mm -hmm. than just counseling in general at that point no I wasn't I mean I knew that I wanted to do marriage and family and um but I ended up going with a counseling psych 
PhD as opposed to marriage and family in part because of, you know, I wanted to be in the Boston area, which was close to my family and, and things like that. But, but no, I wasn't a lot. I had no real idea about sexuality, none. Sure. I would have been a little shocked with myself, actually. <laughs> at the time. <laughs> yeah, I can only imagine. And probably a lot of people around you. Yes. <laughs> so you got your PhD at Boston College, is that right? That's right. So tell us about your experience. What important experiences or ideas did you have that eventually led you to becoming mm-hmm. Dr. Yeah. Finlayson 5 the right now? <laughs> well, um, let me just think about that. I mean, I first of all, I loved living in Boston and I absolutely loved the singles ward there. Um, it was like heaven for me because I often felt, I grew up in Burlington, Vermont, and I always felt like an outsider there as a devout Latter-day Saint, you know, relatively liberal community and non, not very religious community. And you know, here I am like weird, Mormon sure. kid. <laughs> sure. So I thought going to BYU was going to be coming home, but it wasn't. I mean, I got there and I was like, wow, there's, I don't really relate to the culture because the culture wasn't so much a part of my Latter-day Saints experience. Right. So the, the, like what I would consider Utah culture really wasn't my growing up experience because it's sure. not in your neighborhood. And I'm not dissing it at all. I'm just saying it was a it's very, different. it's very different. And you know, when I would go to church as a kid, there was a sense of this was your family. And these are people that really cared about you. Nobody cared if you showed up in pants. You didn't even care if somebody showed up and you could smell cigarettes on them because everybody needed each other so much that there wasn't yeah. like a lot of judgment, you know? So there was more yeah. like this kind of cleaving, clinging to really what mattered. And so it, when I went to BYU, I, I felt like a lot of the pieces that didn't matter were the ones that at least freshmen seemed to be very focused on and you know everybody gets to be freshman and be 18 but you know it felt like there was a lot of this kind of superficiality yeah that was was hard for me to relate to right and so I also like on the one hand I was really glad to be there and I was glad to be with other Latter-day Saints but I also felt like an outsider again so this is my long way of saying when I went to Boston it's like the first time I felt like these were my people like people that were thoughtful about their faith were you know knew that it had meant a great deal in their lives and had questions and they were just fun and interesting. And I wasn't considered too, you know, BYU was, I did have some people that I went on dates with who were calling me to repentance for wanting to get a PhD and I'm not exaggerating at all. Oh man, (laughs) I have actually, I I have heard stories. In fact, I have one close friend who was just telling me a story of how selfish it is for a girl to pursue graduate studies. Yeah. Right. It's so unfortunate. Yeah, it's too bad. And I, you know, I think, you know, a lot of these men came by it, honestly, because that was sort of in the air at the time. But, but I didn't have any of that in Cambridge. So I, I'm, I'm I'm answering such a long way, but it was really refreshing. And it was really, um, so it was just a nice group of people to be amongst and to have discussions with and to think about faith with. And um, so that was really important for me. It's also where I met my husband. And, and then, you know, just my graduate program itself. Well, especially in the PhD program, I just had thoughtful professors who um, we, I happened to have a very exceptional cohort. There were six of us and we were very diverse. I mean, we came from very different backgrounds, but we immediately became very good friends. 
And so there was this ability to kind of think through ideas together in a lot of our discussions that were very informative. And, you know, one of the general biases, I think, you know, one of the biases that I encountered a lot at BYU was this general fear of intellectualism or feminism or, you know, just there was just this general fear at the time. But right. when I went to Boston College, there was also this fear of religiousness and people that were thinking in a more conservative ways. So I would often feel like I'm stepping into a, a whole paradigm of thinking that I don't fully buy into. And I was just like, that's my life. I feel like I'm always in that. <laughs> I can't get out of it. No matter where you go. <laughs> yeah. The only place I kind of felt a little relief from that was in my Cambridge ward. But, but anyway, so... Um, but it was good for my thinking because it meant I had to articulate my thoughts and consider them and see, did I really stand by that? Or was that just something that I was, a, a, you know, an idea that I inherited or was it really, did it articulate my experience? Well, so, you know, the short of it, my dissertation was very much that kind of a conversation between these competing paradigms and how to understand LDS women's experiences around sexuality from the frame of feminism and also the frame of Mormonism. And, and it was my best attempt to be as fair as I could be to both, basically. I wasn't so much trying to defend either paradigm, but more to understand LDS women's experiences through both of those lenses. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. You had such a unique experience coming from Ver Vermont. Is that right? That's coming right. from Vermont to a very unique bubble in Provo to a totally different, unique environment yeah. in Boston. That's right. And all these things, it sounds like were very influential in you developing the opinions and um, perspective that yes. led you to the work that you're doing now. Exactly. That's powerful. Yeah. So I found this, there's an article where that you're quoted in mm -hmm. and there's two pretty big paragraphs. I really struggled to like sum it down to the most important parts, but I wanted to share mm -hmm. it sure. because I think it's really fascinating. It goes back to the point you made earlier that God doesn't necessarily have a cookie cutter. This is yeah. your path. It's mm -hmm. more about us working. So I'm going to go ahead and read it. Sure. And I want to hear some thoughts about it. Mm -hmm. It says, we tend to focus on a predetermined plan for our lives in God's mind that we need to ascertain and fulfill. I believe we need to trust in God and his goodness enough to be anxiously engaged in any good cause in our own unique way and to have the faith to tolerate the inherent exposure and uncertainty of this while pursuing goodness anyway. It requires doing things that feel hard and without any guarantee that it's all going to work out. It requires tolerance that you don't know how it will all work out, but are willing to move forward anyway. Your desire, your effort makes you more able to receive inspiration or insight into how a problem might be solved or to feel what direction might be best. Mm -hmm. I believe God is in a relationship with us and will offer things to us as we demonstrate the desire to create a better world. Mm -hmm. So it seems clear that all these different experiences were leading you to look at a problem in a very mm -hmm. unique way. So at what, how did you know that your unique experiences had put you in a place to tackle this problem of women's sexuality in the LDS community? Mm. Well, I, to be honest, I didn't know it. I didn't know that I had the tools. I just wanted to try. Yeah. Right. So I guess what I would say is that you know, it's true. Like sometimes when you look backwards, you're like, wow, it's amazing how things came together in right. a way that made me able to do what I'm doing. But at the time I had no sense of, oh yes, I'm just walking, you know, down some lighted sure. path, you know, and Steve so Jobs say, says that you can't connect the dots looking forward. You can only no, connect them looking backward. hundred percent. It's absolutely right. So when you say, how did I know? I absolutely didn't know. 
The only thing I did know was that I wanted to try to figure it out. It mattered to me. And I had enough experiences around, you know, doing the women's studies minor, you know, just meant I was thinking about these things a lot. My experiences in my counseling training programs that I was thinking about these things a lot. And then my, um, you know, who knows what I would have done if this hadn't happened, but my doctoral program asked me to teach human sexuality to the undergraduates, not because I had any interest in it yet. I had, they just were looking for a a doctoral student to take over that course. Mm -hmm. And so that then- You were still Siegel at this time, right? Yes, I was. And the other one they wanted was drugs and alcohol, which is kind of funny. They they had these (laughs) two- I'm like, you know what you're asking, right? Like, come on. (laughs) So I ended up just saying yes to human sexuality and then taught multiple sections of it. So, but it gave me like this ability to just immerse myself in the textbook that they recommended in the literature that was out there. And it made me start really thinking about what were Latter-day Saints experiences, what were Latter-day Saint women's experiences. I've been reading all a lot about feminism. So it's just like a lot of things were making, you know, I was trying to decide on a dissertation topic, but it just sort of was like, I want to understand this for me, even I want to understand this part of the world. And so it was just, there was a desire and a passion and my experiences and my proclivities had made that become an interesting enough question that my energy could go fully to it, but Mm -hmm. I had no sense of I'm supposed to or I know I can do it. I mean, I really had no confidence. I didn't, I should say that differently than that. I didn't know where it was going to lead me. And maybe I was just going to start reading about it and feeling like this is not what I want and I need to move to something else. So, yeah, but the more I did it, the more passion I had about it and the more desire I had to work out these pieces that felt incongruent. And so it's like, my own longing to sort something out was the driver. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So maybe a much better question rather than what in what problem am I in a good position to solve is what yeah. is a problem that I am deeply passionate yes. about and willing yes. to direct my energy at solving. Exactly right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I think that's really powerful. So would you have anything else to add or to say to somebody who I think there are a lot of students mm-hmm. in particular who are struggling with this thought of, Question I can't of, find my correct path. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, lose the correct path idea. That's idea number one. Because <laughs> sure. there is no correct path. It's just anxiously engaged in a good cause in a complex world. The one thing I would say is that when you're saying like, what is the problem I'm passionate enough about solving? Well, part of knowing what that might be, and there's probably many problems one could solve because the world needs help on many fronts is to just get involved in something. Because if you're sitting back waiting for something to feel quote unquote right, or you know what God wants, you're not getting the lived experience, you're not developing the muscles, you're not developing the mind that you need to take on the next challenge or to better discern what does appeal to you. There's a lot of things I did that I absolutely hated, okay, and or that had no spark in them for me, which is how I kept getting closer to what did have that. So I think that's important. Like I took classes that I thought I hate cognitive psychology. I mean, I really did. I was like, it's so boring to me. I can't, you know, it just feels so mechanical. There were so many, I hated assessment and testing. It was just like, shoot me now. I just hated it. You know, so there was a lot of things I was doing because they were part of the curriculum or whatever that I just knew this is not at all how I think this doesn't speak to me. It's not, not what I like. Um, and so 
but you need to get out and have those experiences. First of all, they inform everything else, even though I didn't like cognitive psychology, it's still part of a foundation of knowledge that matters, but it also helps you to kind of know what, where is, where are the things that I really enjoy that I really like, and you need to have the skill set to be invited to do more. So don't be afraid of just rolling up your sleeves and taking a step into the dark and doing something, because even if you don't like it, it will better inform you for the next step. Mm-hmm. That's great advice. Mm-hmm. Before we move on from your college experience, is there anything else you would add, even going back to your undergrad, if you could go back and start it all over again, is there anything you would do differently about approaching your college experience mm. or advice you'd have for college students just getting started? Mm. That's a good question. I mean, this isn't that interesting to people. I might've studied something like history or I just felt it was a little bit redundant, my master's program and my undergrad. That's neither here nor there. I would have maybe studied anthropology or, you know, something like that, just as another way to understand humanity. But, um, but would I, anything I would maybe tell myself if I had to do it again or some advice I could have given myself I think the only thing I would say is all the insecurity and uncertainty you feel is way more normal than abnormal, because I think in some ways I felt so uncertain about myself, uncertain if I was enough, attractive enough, whatever enough. And I think I looked at other people around me and thought they had things more figured out than they really did. And I think the only thing if I could give myself advice to my freshman or sophomore self is to just trust in the process that I was in and it was going to yield fruit. I, I was trying to be, I was trying to develop more trust in myself during that time. And I, and, and it was a very valuable process for me, but I think there were times in that where I felt unclear that I would ever get out of the pain that I felt. I mean, I wasn't depressed or anything, but I just felt a lot of uncertainty about myself and um, I'm sure this happened to many people. I was only aware of it happening to me, but like, you know, I'd go to dances at BYU and no one would ask me to dance, not a single person. And so I would just feel this like, oh, like I'm not enough or I'm the wrong kind of person, or I don't have blonde or big enough hair or whatever it is, (laughs) but I'm just not desirable to this population. And so I'd work really hard to just calm myself and reassure myself that, Someday I would be known, someday I'd be understood by someone and that I knew, God knew me, I knew me. Like I just did a lot of work around that. And I'm grateful I did because I think it helped me to stay anchored into something internal rather than trying to get the validation I couldn't get. But it was hard at times. Mm -hmm. That is really hard. Yeah. Were there any, do you remember finding any particular resources that were helpful like that's that mm. kind of self-talk and that working yeah. yourself through that is something that doesn't come naturally to everybody. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think because I was this student of social sciences, I was reading, I was reading books that, um, you know, I was trying to utilize as tools. Um, I'm trying to think if I can think of any of them. You know, I had a trust in a process that there was, I don't know why I had this trust, but I did believe that getting this internal strength in me mattered. I, my belief in a God who knew me and loved me was exceptionally important for me because I really leaned into that a lot when I felt misunderstood. I went to the BYU Counseling Center my freshman year and had a really good counselor there who just, I think, understood me. And he was just 
a good antidote to just somebody that I felt I could go and talk to about my uncertainties, my faith questions. He was just a good father figure that I felt knew and understood me. So there, you know, there were things like that. Um, And then somehow when I came back from my mission, a lot of that just was more settled in me and I was more able to just kind of hold my own. And um, I I don't mean to say like, I had no questions or anything like that, but I just was, I was just not quite so self-doubting anymore. Mm -hmm. That's powerful. Mm. So also in the same quote, it says that you talk about how leaning into a problem being anxiously engaged in a good work requires faith to tolerate the inherent exposure and uncertainty of Mm -hmm. that endeavor. What were some of the inherent exposures or uncertainties or maybe social discomforts of once you decided I am, Mm -hmm. I'm going to become a therapist and then even more, I'm going to pursue this sexuality Mm -hmm. of women in the LDS culture. What Mm -hmm. were some of the discomforts and exposures that you experienced as you decided to move forward professionally? Mm. Well, I think there were certainly people who thought I shouldn't be getting a PhD for starters. Um, I had, you know, my young women's leader let me know that was the wrong wrong choice. (laughs) Um, Right. I thanked her for that. (laughs) And that I should, because I had been dating a guy who wanted to marry me. And, you know, instead of marrying him, I, I went on to get my, you know, my PhD. So I, you know, that. I think there were clearly people who thought that was faithless of me and that I was prioritizing, I was being selfish rather than taking the, the godly path of getting married. And, but, you know, I I just, I kind of knew what I knew. I knew that I wasn't, I knew that marrying him was not the right choice for me. And I knew that this is what I needed to do. And I just trusted myself enough. Thankfully there was in my program itself, you know, that I remember just, sometimes sitting with counselors that were there to train us, that is to say people with more experience that could be dismissive of religious people, dismissive of, and, you know, it it was sometimes exposing and uncertain to kind of defend and to stand up and say, no, I think you're, you're, you're being too simple-minded about that. And, and just kind of tolerate that in some ways I wasn't there validating their view of the world um, that those weren't, those weren't combative relationships in any sense, but it just meant kind of, um, tolerating that when I graduated, I was, um, offered a job to be an assistant professor at, at Boston university, which was really unusual to get that kind of an offer, um, mm-hmm. with, but, um, I ended up turning it down because I had just had my second child and my first child had been diagnosed with autism and, It was a hard job to turn down, but I really knew that I didn't want to turn this over to somebody else. So while maybe my Mormon community would have thought, oh, good for her, she's doing the right thing. Oh, you're fine. Turn this over, meaning turn over to like a caregiver. Meaning, so the challenge of my child with special needs and my newborn. Got it, got it. Okay. Turn it over to somebody else to take on what I knew was some hard work there. Like, I knew that my son on the spectrum needed a different level of engagement and care and investment than a typical two-year-old. And as hard and as overwhelming as that seemed to me at the time, having a nanny do it or, you know, 
just, I, I couldn't do it. And so while probably people thought I was being obedient, maybe some people thought that's why I turned down the job. That wasn't why I was doing it. I I wasn't working from that frame. I was doing it because I knew the person I wanted to be. I couldn't go take that job, even though it had status in it and neglect what I felt that I could do best for my, for my child. It sounds similar to what motivated you to pursue continuing after this problem of sexuality and being a therapist was just this. I mean, I could leave it. I could just go be a interior designer, but I feel internally that this is something I can contribute to. That's right. So, you know, there was some invalidation. My professors thought I was a little crazy to be turning down that job. Like they were like, what are you talking about? Right. And I'm just like, I, it, I can't, I don't want to do it. So, um, so yeah, so there was always people that thought there were always people who thought what I was doing didn't make sense, but I, to be fair, I also had people who believed in me and supported me, um, pretty unequivocally. I mean, my dad thought women's studies and things like that were completely unnecessary. (laughs) (laughs) He's like, women already have enough power as it is. I love it. (laughs) You have too many names, by the way. Sounds like a classic dad. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. But he still begrudgingly had full respect for me and everything I was doing. And I, I shouldn't say begrudgingly. I mean, I think he really did recognize, especially with time, the value of what I was doing and contributing. So that's powerful. Is there anybody else besides your dad that stands out as somebody that pushed you through the hard times? Oh, well, my mom, for sure. My husband, a hundred percent, my husband's family, my husband's parents. I mean, uh, they were very, you know, supportive and helpful. And just that period where I was trying to get my dissertation written and, um, There's just a lot of, you know, we had two kids, one with special needs, and I'm there trying to, to get it all, uh, well, while I was pregnant with my second at the time, but I was just trying to get it all done. And they were, they were there. And then I just think people, friends who knew me was glad that, glad that I was doing what I was doing. So, so I definitely had supporters. Yeah. Unfortunate. So I, I would imagine we could dive into this for another hour. And so I just want to touch on it briefly, but the question of you, you got married while you were working on your graduate yeah, studies. That's right. Was there any kind of concern that getting married was saying no to all these ambitious professional goals that I have? How did you yeah, work through that? thousand percent. <laughs> so first of all, that's why I didn't get married until I was almost 30. I mean, I don't think it's true. If I go back in time, I would have married John like the day after I met him. (laughs) He would have been like, isn't this a little bad? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Because he was a good choice and he would have been through any of that, that I, cause that was, I met him right as I was starting my graduate work. Um, But I think that I had come up in this model that once you get married, your ambitions and desires definitely should take a second, a back seat. And and this issue of family resources. So I really grew up in this idea that once you get married, you kind of lose your half, you, you lose your ability to control your life. Right. And so, you know, it's so it somewhat unconscious, but like, because I cared about interior design, but I saw my mom as her wishes around the house were sort of secondary because there wasn't a lot of money and, and she didn't make money. So I just had this idea, like, nobody's going to keep me from having a nice house. <laughs> and it's very defensive. And so I like was always buying always, but I had, I purchased antiques and things that I really loved that I knew I would bring with me 
that so nobody could take this from me. I mean, that was just huh. like kind of unconscious, but real. And so, wow. I mean, our first apartment together was cute. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Naturally. <laughs> Naturally. But, you know, even Finlayson Fife was like this fear that I was going to lose myself. So I had always a plan planned that I would be Finlayson, take John's name, but professionally stay Fife so that I could just kind of retain my birth name. And then oh, I didn't realize that. So Fife is your maiden name. Yes, that's right. Yeah, a lot of times because of the, the, the it, people think it's the opposite because of the way that it is. But then when it really came down to it, I just said, John, I just, I love you, but, and I love your name. I even prefer your name to my name, but I just can't. The symbolism of taking on your name just because I love you feels wrong. Like I just can't do it. And so John's the one who said, I understand that. And he's like, I don't, I don't, you know, that's fine with me, but I just wish we shared a name. So it was actually his idea that we both become Finlayson Five. Interesting. So, yeah. So that was like another symbolic thing. I mean, I think a few years into marriage, I was like, I'm fine if I'm just Finlayson, I'm fine with dropping it. But at that point it was too late. Like our kids, we talked to them. How about we just become Finlayson? Cause I just wanted to be easier. And they were like, no, my name's Finlayson Five. <laughs> so we never yeah. ended up changing it. But anyway, but um I lost track of your question, but anyway, I think no, that for okay. me, it was like working this out and kind of feeling like, I mean, I knew when I met John, he was not, he was inherently a collaborative person. He was somebody who fully respected me, who even in the, in our wedding dinner said, you know, I hadn't, I had no idea he was going to say this, but he just said, I know that Jennifer has a real gift and, uh, you know, I, I really want to support her. Sorry. <laughs> in that you know, so how powerful it just meant a lot to me at the time. I don't know why I'm crying about it right now, but <laughs> it just meant a lot to me because I think I'd grown up in the opposite model that the woman always supports the man. And I think he just gen and he genuinely meant it and he's been tremendously supportive. So wow. it meant a lot to me to be marrying that kind of person. Yeah. That's really powerful. Thanks for sharing. Mm -hmm. Would you say, do you think it could have been possible? Let's say you had met John at the beginning of your undergrad mm. and you had been married starting your undergrad, do you think it still would be possible to have pursued the career path that you did having been married from a, a much earlier age? Mm. I mean, given who John is, I, I think so. As long as I had been able to stay clear that that was legitimate, because I, I don't yeah. think he would have been heavy handed or pressuring, like we must have right. babies or something like that. I think um, <laughs> <laughs> I just don't think that's who he is it's a little hard to know because in, in many senses being married to John have not felt like my life's been constricted at all. Like I feel so able to be me. I'm sure that yeah. would have been true even as a freshman. I don't know if I would have been mature enough or developed enough to not fall into a kind of cultural expectation, you know, but right. I, I really don't know. I, I'm imagining that I probably could have married to him still been true to myself. So right. it's hard to I, say. I asked that. Yeah. No, I think that's a great answer. I asked that because I can think of different conversations I've had with friends of mine who are girls who, who really are afraid to make mm -hmm. the step of marriage because they feel that they're right now in their undergrad, mm -hmm. because they feel like it would be, you know, closing the book on all their ambitious goals. Yeah. And I would imagine it has a lot to do with this culture that you've talked about of the woman submits her will to the man. To, yes. So I think that's a really great answer. That's yeah. Something we're thinking about. Yeah. So it seems very clear to me that 
from the beginning, there was never any kind of focus on fame, recognition, wealth. It was a very sincere desire to solve a problem and a problem for people, which I think is really powerful. And it's led you to find a lot of success. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us about some of the most rewarding experiences that you've had now in Mm. your professional career as a counselor? Maybe any specific stories that come to mind where you've just been able to say this, this is what has made it all worth it. And this is really exactly what I meant to be doing. Mm. It's a good question. I have to think about it. I mean, it was all worth it all from right at the very beginning, because in the sense that I remember the first time that I saw a client after I was um, licensed and opened my private practice, it was just so rewarding. Like I just, I just was so grateful that I was now in a position that I could do this. And I remember a few months in saying to my husband, like, don't tell anyone, but I would do this for free. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's really powerful. That that should be a great sign. Yeah, because it's just very gratifying to be able to be helpful to people and to feel like that you can say something that really allows them to get a hold of something in themselves or in their lives and their lives expand and become better. It's an extremely privileged position. And I think it sometimes has surprised me how much that it means to people. I mean, I, 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 I mean, I'm just grateful. I, it surprises me a bit because it feels so familiar to me, but I think for people, you know, especially I get the message a lot, like, I think people that probably were in a similar position to me are able to then see how I worked some of these things out and it gives them something to kind of anchor to and think through. And so I, I'm just, I'm just, I don't know if there's a moment. I think one moment that stood out to me was when BYU asked me to come back and speak at their 25th anniversary of the women's studies program. And I felt like I got to stay in the presidential what do you call that? The, like the hotel there on campus. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. I know you're talking about, I can't think of the exact. Yeah. And it was the guest house and it was like, Oh, I didn't know people still stayed there. That would have been awesome. Well, yeah. So they, I got to stay there and it was a lovely home, lovely room and they fed me food. And I don't know. I just felt like, wow, to have the validation of BYU and the program and to be the one asked to come back and speak. I just felt so grateful for it because I sort of harkened back to this sort of insecure, uncertain time. And it was was kind of an acknowledgement that it was valued what I was doing. And um, that was a moment. And I think, I think there's been times when I've been giving a workshop or something and I show up and there's like this room full of people. I'm just like, what's going on? How did this happen? (laughs) Right. It just kind of like, do I deserve to be here? Like, it's just a little bit of a moment of like panic if I start to think too much. And I'm like, don't think, just do what I, <laughs> just do what I'm here to do. But, um, um, but yeah, there's been those moments of kind of real surprise. So, mm-hmm. and I think when you say, don't tell anybody, but I would do this for free, it's probably important to point out, and correct me if I'm wrong, that certainly doesn't mean that there aren't the hard moments and the the low moments. Oh yeah. No question. Do you have any advice or methods for coping with those low moments? Mm. Yeah. Let me think about that. I mean, 
one thing is that sometimes if I've been working with a couple and I feel like it feels dark or it feels like there's it's hard to hope or that you see what evil can do to people or yeah people that refuse to kind of wake up and do better mm. um it can feel a bit overwhelming you know the darkness of it I guess so yeah. I think that one of the ways that I I handle it as I just I just have resources and things in my life that kind of open me up to the to the good and you know one of those is you know so, some of it's just listening to certain to composers that I love that you know classical music just anything some of that's, them in particular well I just love I love Chopin <laughs> Yeah. I love, I mean, I, there's so many, I can't even begin to say, sure. I, there's so many composers that are just pure brilliance. It depends on which, you know, which, but like the Brook Violin Concerto is just, it's ridiculous. Mm. I love it so much. <laughs> you listen to yeah. it and you're like, how can somebody have composed this? It's incredible. So, <laughs> um, so there's just that, which kind of reminds me of the light and the good, and the, the, the good in humanity, the miraculousness of humanity. I think it's helpful for me if I'm, if my mind is going into future fears or, or, you know, past regrets to like be in the present, to be in the present of how miraculous life is right now today that I get to be here having a conversation with a podcaster about this topic is just, it's a privilege and here I am and I get to be in it and, and I, and I get to wake up to another day and I get to, you know, deal with the frustrations and problems of everyday life. I'm, I'm the fortunate one who gets to do that. (laughs) And when I keep myself in that sort of here and now perspective, if there's so much joy and beauty in it. So that's definitely uh, helpful for me. And then just subjecting myself to the minds of people that, are that I respect, whether that's friends, my husband, you know, good thinkers out there that just gives me an anchor into, and then, and then just my relationship with divinity or just like my higher, like feeling that sense of God caring about what I do really matters to me. Wow. That's powerful. Do you work with a lot of young couples, newlyweds, uh, people that in their early twenties or even in a dating setting? I don't actually, I think in part because, well, I shouldn't say I don't, I, I certainly have. Um, I did in, initially in my training because I was in college counseling centers for a few years. Um, mm-hmm. But later on, um, you know, it's been more married couples probably in their forties, late thirties. That's been my more typical clientele but I have worked some with sometimes I have people that will just hire me for like three meetings or something to just kind of help give them some ways to think about they're about to get married they just want some input on where they get stuck where they have just gotten married and they're trying to work out their sexual relationship and I think it's very wise that they do it because it's sort of like okay let's get these all pointed in the right direction and then we can keep working on it but a lot of times what happens is in early marriage, people kind of organize themselves in amorphous ways. I don't know how to say it better than that, but it kind of is familiar, but it actually, if you let it grow in that position over 20 years, it creates real trouble. So 
So my answer is no, I don't do a lot of that work, but I think it's very valuable work because if you can get some things put in the right position, it will grow into something beautiful and strong. Sure. And so I am cool. thinking about doing a newlywed course actually for that reason, just and, and just to start getting some input to people as they're starting out. Got it. Well, I, I still want to ask because I'm sure you have yeah. more um, insight than, than most. What do you see any really common pitfalls or mm. uh, yes. mistakes that young couples maybe in the dating phase and early marriage phase are mm-hmm. likely to make that they can avoid? Well, you know, a kind of a typical one, at least that was made by the people I'm working with, you know, that they made in the beginning of their marriage is that falling into the idea that, um, that the man is strong and the woman is fragile. And that has many implications. Like the man is the one who should be a caretaker and the woman should kind of be taken care of by him. That has bad implications for the man and the woman. It means men have to be pretend strong and women are unnecessarily dependent. And so you have kind of two half people rather than two whole people. And it's an easier way to do marriage if you need a sense of validation outside of yourself. So if you need to feel like you're stronger than your wife to feel like a strong man, you're going to be unwittingly facilitating her anxiety and insecurity and limitations, but also hiding your own. And so a lot of people are doing things like, you know, masking big parts of themselves, looking at porn as a way to kind of deal with their anxieties or uncertainties about sexuality or themselves. They just find maladaptive ways to kind of cope while pretending or giving a a face or a front of, of strength. And then the wife is kind of depending on that because she was enculturated to do it and to give up her sense of self and then kind of looking to him to make her life right, which is never a good idea. Right. Because no good man can make you happy, no matter how much they try. It just doesn't work. You have to kind of take responsibility for your life and your gifts and your decisions and fully make them. And I'm not, I'm not in any way dissing a traditional arrangement. I, my husband and I did a traditional arrangement for years where I was home and he was the primary breadwinner. Um, right. And when it's entered into fully volitionally knowing you really have choices, I think it can work wonderfully, but it's, but if you do it because you think I should, I have no choices, I, you know, okay, I'm going to just fully depend on you, but now you need to make me happy. You know, the kind of Cinderella Prince story is like, she's riding off on his horse and he's going to provide her with joy. And it's a nice fantasy, but it never works. So that framing yeah. of inequality is compelling when we're young, but it's, it's a poor model for real happiness and real intimacy in a marriage, which people want but they're afraid to actually create because it requires more of both people the secondary thing i would say which is very much in line with this is that sex is for the man that idea is a terrible idea (laughs) Hmm. i mean culturally we allow men to be sexual now they still have to like they can't be too sexual and they have to be careful and they can't hurt the woman and there's all these messages of fear that men get which i think really disrupts men's peace with their sexuality But then what men are often doing is looking for the woman to validate it and to make it legitimate and make it okay and, and offer the loving sacrifice of her presence so he can legitimately be sexual. But it's just a disaster for both people because he may get sex, but never feels desired, wanted, passionately longed for. 
And she has, you know, she's only sees sex as something that is legitimate by accommodating, not that she herself can foster and create her own sexual sexuality and her sexual interest. So she's not in a position to desire because it's not been, it's been a forbidden part of herself. And a lot of times people handle that by just keeping the old model in place, you know, and, and it just creates suffering for men who never feel received or wanted women who feel that they're constantly having to manage his ego and his sexuality. And then often that man feels enough resentment or loneliness that porn or something less, less um, exposing becomes compelling, which then further disrupts the trust. She then really wants to shut her sexuality off because now it's connected to this sense of being betrayed. And it's just, it's just, it's a disaster. So, but an easy one, I'm not, I don't say it judgmentally. It's like the cultural messages we receive often are just a setup for exactly that path. Right. Mm -hmm. It sounds like we could go into this also for another hour. Do you have any, where would you direct people if they're listening and they, they feel like they would are in, interested in more help mm-hmm. and would like to understand these problems better. Mm-hmm. Uh, how so can we learn more about? Yeah. That? So my, I have online courses that, you know, are primarily, I created them with an LDS audience in mind, but they're really suited to anyone who wants true principles to help them sort out their relationship to themselves and their sexuality and their spouse. So I have a, the art of loving, which is immense sexuality course and it's all about coming to peace with yourself and your sexuality and to be a source of have your sexuality be a source of strength in your life and then the art of desire is the women's course and it's very similar goal which is reconciling one's relationship with oneself and more deeply integrating one sense of desire and sexuality and then i have two couples courses that are about once the a relationship course to help you understand the dynamics of your relationship, what's getting played out, how it's getting played out, like these one up and one down dynamics I was just talking about. And then a couple's sexuality course, which is really then how do you how do you create a meaning between you that's desirable? Because you know, as I was just talking about <clears throat> this woman kind of being in the servicing position and the husband's mean service, that meaning is so undesirable that no smart woman is going to want that sex, you know? (laughs) So a lot of times what's happening is that the meanings are interfering with the path. I'm saying a lot of times, always, it's the meaning that the couple has unwittingly created that undermines passion, that undermines freedom. When people feel sexual, they feel free. They feel free to be themselves. They feel free to experience themselves as sexual beings. And so when you don't have that in your marriage, it's very hard to show up in a place or create a space of freedom. So it's about helping couples to see how they've unwittingly created meanings that interfere with a sense of freedom and peace in their marriages and then what they can do about it. So, yeah. Interesting. That's powerful. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for sharing. I'll, we'll include in the description of the podcast, a link to that so that people can find out more on your website and the links to the different courses as well. Yeah. The one one question that I like to ask everybody we have on, and I would love to hear your thoughts. The president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, President Hinckley, at one point mm-hmm. said, one of the great ironies of life is this, he or she who serves almost always benefits more than he or she who is mm-hmm. served. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Can you describe any ways that you've seen that irony play out mm. in your life? Um, let me think. Yeah, that's just an interesting idea. So to think about what that means to me. I think, you know, there's no question. I mean, kind of going back to this, I'd do it for free. I mean, there's just no right. question that stepping into something, there's a whole bunch of literature on this idea that that people's sense of contributing is highly linked to their sense of self and their sense of self-acceptance. And right. it doesn't matter, it doesn't have to be showy. You don't have to have people, you know, be applauding it, but this sense that what you do is making a difference. Um, I think going back to like deciding to stay home and do the much harder overwhelming work of working with my special needs child it's like a place where I knew I wanted to make a difference and I felt I could make a difference. And so I don't mean that every day I woke up thinking, wow, I'm making such a difference. I mean, there were days where I'm like, I mean, this is not working. <laughs> this is not, this is not making a difference. <laughs> Believe me, I definitely had that feeling a lot, but there's, but there's this sense of like do, doing, fulfilling what you feel contributes genuinely, not because you need people to applaud you, not because you need people to think you're so good, it's not about proving something to someone else. It's about doing what you feel you can do. And I think that's very much linked to a sense of your value and right or wrong. I think that's how we're wired up as human beings. So I think, you know, the people there's, there's also this um, research on fulfilling careers. There's a whole and I've done these things, you know, and I've given these, there's interest inventories you can give to people that help them to know like, okay, I lean, I lean more towards engineering and the physical sciences or whatever, you know, and you can kind of find a good match between your disposition and careers that matters. Like, I don't think you should, if you're a engineering type, become a counselor, <laughs> but right. you know, but that only matters a little because what really is linked to people's sense of fulfillment is feeling that the path they chose makes a difference. So what I would say is back to your earlier point was like finding a problem that matters to you, that you'd right. like to try and contribute to in some way that will educate you, that will offer you skills in the process of trying to solve it. But it also will give you the good feeling that you're doing something that makes a difference for someone. And so I think that's, it's just powerful in one's own well-being and it makes a difference for others like my my kids have gone and done some of these hefy programs and i'm certain that what they're doing makes a difference for the person whose house they're painting or the classroom that they're building right but i see the people that really benefit are my kids yeah <laughs> like they come Absolutely. back and they feel good about having done something for a, a piece of you know some part of the world that needed something and that's really significant for their sense of self it's surprising how easy that is to forget. Yeah, it is. That's yeah, there's advice. one more. This was actually a BYU study um, where they gave everybody in the study five or ten dollars, and they randomly selected you know half the group to spend that on someone else, and the other half to buy something for themselves. And the feeling of happiness went up for the group that bought it for some someone else. Of course. So it's like so obvious, yeah. but not intuitive. You're like 10 bucks. I'm going to go get myself whatever, you know, when I, yeah. and instead of like make a difference for others is much more connected to well-being. 
Right. That's, a, that's well put. It's so obvious, but not intuitive. Yes, exactly. That's very well put. Hmm. Dr. Finlayson Five, thank you so much. That has been really, really powerful. I've, I really enjoyed that. I thank you. That's a fantastic answer. And I've really enjoyed learning more from you. Thank you. It was a real pleasure. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Dr. Finlayson Fife and the work that she does, check out the links in the show notes below to find her website, online courses she offers, information on upcoming events, and her free Facebook group.